The scripture today is from the 20th chapter of Exodus, verses 1 through 13. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, you or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. We're talking about murder today. We're talking about murder, but I loved, I love what Drew said. She used this phrase, you need to burn into your brain, people of restoration. People of restoration, that's really why you're here today. If you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, you understand something beyond the fact that you've been saved. You understand that you've been saved for a purpose. And your purpose is the restoration of God's creation. And so God gives these commandments, you know, they're Old Testament fire and brimstone kinds of things, and He's going to meet out His wrath and all this kind of stuff. But if you're not a Christian, if this is all new to you, I want to, I want to put something else in your mind uh, a moment before we begin. I want to say, uh, remember that this God who speaks, it's really dangerous for anyone to drop into a book anywhere, pick a few words, and then form all their opinions. And so let me just say that if you study the whole counsel of Scripture, if you study the whole redemptive story, you know that this God who says these things has a plan. He has plans. He has plans of restoration. And they're going to cost him more than anything he ever asks of any human being in all of Scripture. They're going to cost him everything. So every time these words come out of God's mouth, sometimes they seem hard. Sometimes they challenge our modern sensibilities. Remember that he has plans. He has plans that are, that are beautiful, spectacular, infinitely wise, eternal in nature, he takes finite broken things and makes them eternally 
new. So these words that come out of, out of his mouth, you need to remember that. I also want to say this about this commandment we're studying today. You shall not murder. Um, I was talking with some of you this week and some folks were giving me some feedback from their community group discussions. And you may have a lot of questions about this. You know, some translations just read, you shall not kill. And so there's always been some debate about whether that supports pacifism, whether you should kill anything, whether you should kill an animal, uh, anything like that. Um, I'm not going to get into all those questions today, but please know, because uh, we could talk about that for, forever, uh, but please know that I'm always here, the pastors are always here. Shoot us an email if you want to talk more about it, you want to get a cup of coffee and talk about these things, that there's something really challenging to you that's an obstacle or that's holding you back or that's confusing you. Use us, reach out to us, and let us uh, interact with you on a deeper level. Invite us to your community group, and we'll come and we'll do a stump the pastor, and you can, we can talk about these things. Um, it's easier to stump me than Tom, but... Um, by the way, I'm just the intro guy. You, you know, I don't usually, I'm good for about five good minutes. So <laughs> after that, I don't know. You know, it's up in the air after that. So uh, we'll see. But uh, what I did want to say is this. I do want to give you one thing. It won't be entirely satisfying for all these questions about, well, what about war? You know, what about capital punishment? Um, what, what about animals? What about uh, people who are in law enforcement or people who use force, who use violence to do their job? Uh, let me just say this one overarching principle that I think God is talking about here, um, and I'm not going to develop this a lot today, but I just want to say this in answer to a, a lot of those things. Um, the commanded killing of Scripture has to do with the taking of life for the purpose ultimately of protecting and preserving life. When God, and he does, he makes these commands to kill and eat animals, to sacrifice animals. He makes commands even to wage war and annihilate the enemy. And again, I say, this is the eternal God of the universe who is carrying out his plans. By no means do I mean to suggest that I understand all these things. But here's what I do know. When we talk about the whole counsel of scripture and when we talk about what we're going to talk about today, I can say with confidence that God's plan and purpose is ultimately to protect and to preserve life. So uh, with that in mind, I want to tell you what this picture is. Does anybody know what kind of flowers those are? Poppies. So on May 2nd, 1915, at the height of the uh, fighting in World War I, a lieutenant colonel named John uh, McRae lost a dear friend named Alexis Helms um, in the second battle of Ypres in the province of West Flanders, Belgium. Let me tell you why this is so important today, not only because it's Memorial Day and we need to remember those who have lost their lives at war, but uh, uh, it's because of why we fear death. Why we fear death. So for most of human history, when the world believed pretty much unanimously in a spiritual realm and in a God or gods that ruled that realm justly. And they didn't believe death was an end. They didn't believe in annihilation. They didn't believe that when you died, you turned to dust and it was all for nothing. They believed that when you died, it was a beginning. It was a beginning either in perfect fellowship with God or it was an end, uh, or it was an end to fellowship with God by your own choosing where you experienced the presence of his wrath. So that was um, 
in that supernaturalist world, but then we tried this grand experiment after the Enlightenment, and we tried to say, no, 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 the box is closed. There is no spiritual world. Everything that matters is in the box, in the physical realm, in the material world, and we, through human understanding and the pursuit of knowledge, can solve every ill. Those religious people have tried and they failed. We can do it. And things were, were marching along until they ran into World War I. And then World War II, when the Holocaust, when technology had no answers to these things. But see, those people created a new kind of fear in us, and modernism created a new kind of fear that's woven into the nature of Westerners, and it is this. Fear is not that in the end of this life I will face judgment in eternity. The fear is that in the end of this life I will be no more. I will, ex- I will cease to exist. If you ever read Leo Tolstoy, that was his big uh, epiphany that he had at this crisis moment in his life. He said it occurred to him that he had been intoxicated by the busyness of life. But once he became sober, he began to realize that everything he had ever done and everything he had ever invested in would end with his death. And that the idea of purpose or eternity for him, was a fraud, foolishness. So it's important to think about that, why we fear death, because death is not natural. It's not the way things were meant to be. We, uh, followers of Christ, of course, we believe in a spiritual world. Um, That trend continues. People say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. We still we still see that there must be something more to life than this. That things must have a prime mover. Something doesn't come from nothing. Intelligent beings who can conceive of eternity don't evolve to that place without someone who has imprinted those, those things on their hearts. It's the way C.S. Lewis says it. So Colonel John McRae lost his dear friend Alex Helms in the second battle of Ypres. And the next day, he performed a burial service himself in that very field. And as he looked out across the devastation, he noticed that among the smoldering mud and wreckage and even the fresh graves, one of which contained his friend, were growing these delicate, beautiful red flowers. They were springing up even overnight. He wrote this poem. In Flanders' fields the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place and in the sky the larks still bravely singing fly scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. So on Memorial Day, we remember all the people who, like Alex Helms, have sacrificed their lives for something grander than themselves. 
And McCrae very intentionally in this poem spoke to us through the voice of the dead from the grave to tell us what? To tell us to carry on, to tell us to live until life is taken from us. And that is why most of them have fought and killed and died. They've done so to protect life as it should be. So some people would say that evolution has led us to this place of self-preservation, but I would say that it's a divine instinct in us that we, have, that we have to sacrifice our lives so that life might live on. That comes from a place eternal. It comes from the heart of God. We were made for life. Death is unnatural And it is a wretched master. It's a burned out battlefield, a barren wasteland where a lush garden should be. It robs love of the object of its affection. It steals away plans and dreams. It's a cruel villain because it comes like a thief in the night. You don't know how, you don't know when, but you know it will come for you even worse for the ones that you love. So it's no wonder to me that God in His Ten Commandments, in the summary of all of His law, included the one that we're talking about today, you shall not murder. And you know, you may, you may think you can, you can take a nap on this one, right? Because we're not murderers. I mean, that's crazy. Uh, I, I mean, come on. We could pack this one up and go home, right? Uh, I, you know, this is one I felt good about. You know, I'm going through the other ones and, hey, you know, 50, 50, 70, 30. I get to this one and I'm like, I'm good. Ready? We're done. We can all agree that we shouldn't murder. But here's the thing. And this is what we'll see today. Ultimately, we're going to see that this command isn't just about taking someone's life. It is about hate. It's about hate. Do you understand that in the the Bible story of creation, you have the first man and the first woman in this garden, this garden that's meant to be eternal with a tree of life, a tree of eternal life. Uh, They're meant to be here forever. There is not meant to be death and decay in here, but somehow in the mystery of God's sovereignty and their free will, they're able to make this choice. And do you understand the choice wasn't about eating fruit? They didn't sinfully eat fruit. It was a choice that began here. And a choice that began here, that is where the sin was. That is where the sin is in the spiritual realm. But what we tend to do as human beings is we want the rules so we know we can follow them. So we say, oh, the fruit, they ate the fruit. What kind of fruit was it? I don't want to eat that fruit. Let's make rules about what you can do, what kinds of fruit you can and can't eat. And we get all preoccupied with the fruit. The sin of eating, of biting the fruit. But but Jesus is going to show us that no, 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 no. That's not what this command is about at all. It's not just about killing a person. It is about hate. And the only love with the power to overcome it. And this is where that people of, that people of restoration comes in. Because, you know, here's the thing. When you're a people of restoration and you have nothing to restore, you get bored, you get lazy, you get complacent. You need, it's like a fireman who never gets to go to a fire. And I think maybe that's part of what maybe has happened over time to the church. But let me tell you what, 
Good firemen run into the fire when everybody else is running away. And I think we have a bit of a fire in our culture. Could we agree? We have an issue in our culture with division and vitriol and hate. There are studies and surveys and maps of how many hate groups there are in each state in the United States. On Jimmy Kimmel, you can watch mean tweets And you go, oh, ha-ha, that's cute, silly little playful tweets. And then you hear what people say to the world about another human being and the way they dehumanize and demean and they're violent. And we just have become okay on fear. So here's what we're talking about today. We're not just going to talk about hate. We don't end there. We end with a love the love with the power to overcome it. And that's not just pie in the sky. It costs. It's a costly love. It's not just about going around and passing out poppies. It's a love that costs everything, but it is irresistible and it wins everywhere it's applied. It's batting a thousand. This kind of love has never lost. So murder is born of hate. And by the way, hate is not the opposite of love. It's the failure to love. It's the natural state when love is gone. It's what fills the vacuum when there is no love. Death is just hate fully realized. This command not to kill is this command not to fully act on hate. Death is not a ceasing, as I said. It's not an end. It's, not, it's only the end of love because you see the body dies, but the soul continues on either in loving communion with God or separated from it by my own rebellion. You might say, well, that's ridiculous. Who would want to be separated from God and spend eternity apart from his love? I had somebody say, oh, uh, C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, nobody will be in hell who does not want to be there. Now that sounds ridiculous. It's almost insulting. I had somebody say that to me last week. I don't want to be around that God. I don't want to be in his heaven. If that's the way he is, I don't want to be that way. I'd rather be in hell. So there's something very heavy to think about here. And so Jesus develops this idea of what it means to murder when he says this in his famous Sermon on the Mount. So this is in the New Testament. Uh, Eons after those commands were given by God on, on Mount Sinai, Jesus ascends a hill and he preaches a sermon and he takes us to a deeper place in our understanding of these commands that God gave on Mount Sinai. He says this, you've heard it said that it was those, uh, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Oh. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the fires of hell. Well, let me tell you what he's saying there. He's saying there's a lot more to this killing thing than just killing somebody. He's saying there's a place that that begins, and that place is just as dark and just as evil and just as insidious as that act of killing itself. He goes on to say in in Matthew 15, out of the heart come evil thoughts. Out of the heart come evil thoughts. And then he defines them. Murder. Adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. He says these are sins, these are crimes, these are murders committed where? In the heart. 
and in the mind. So then if you go to one of Jesus' disciples and read what he wrote about this, the Apostle John says this, he who hates his brother does not know God. Did you think that at some point in your history, you prayed some prayer and that was it? Have you considered the possibility that the litmus test of confidence in your own heart about whether you really did receive Christ is hate? He who hates his brother does not know God. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Is. Not just at risk of becoming one. Hey man, you're on a slippery slope. In the nature and character and divine economy of God, the hatred that leads to murder is murder. And you know, he says, that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, there are two things going on in that little phrase. Uh, He does not have eternal life in him, meaning he is not prepared for eternal life when he dies. But it also means that is evidence, that hate in my heart, that vitriol, that permission to hold people as other, to slander, to mock, to dehumanize, to objectify, large or small, it's all large to God. And he says, the existence of that in my heart is evidence that the abiding eternal love of God that leads to eternal life is not there. And it cannot be shared I can't be a person of restoration, which is the purpose for which I was made and saved. James warns that you can kill with your words. James says, but no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. That is so good. I just think, Twitter! The tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Deadly poison, not just something that makes you sick, something that kills you, something that murders. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Did you hear that? There it is. When I curse or carelessly slander someone, when I make fun of them for their views, or classify and write off entire groups of people as non-humans, unworthy of my Christ-like would die to save them kind of love. I'm murdering them in the eyes of God. I'm attacking God's creation. I'm attacking His workmanship. I'm attacking His children. you, You let somebody talk to your child like that? Imagine the God of the universe. I'm attacking God Himself. Well, so that just turned this whole thing into a Dateline episode. I thought I was off the hook, but now it's like in search of a killer, me, and you. Well, now we're all guilty! But don't worry, it gets better. So the Apostle Paul gives the solution. He says this, this, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is proactive. This kind of love is communal. It's personal and intentional and strategic. It's patient and persevering. 
And Jesus gives you no quarter on whom you have to love. Throughout Scripture, he says you need to love your brother and your sister and your mother and your father. All right, good. I get it. Not always easy, but I get it. You need to love your friends. All right? Your neighbor. Okay, I can love my neighbor. You need to love the stranger, which means you need to know the stranger, which means your doors need to be open to the stranger because love is proactive. You need to love your sworn enemy. Jesus says, you have heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So here's the problem. Picture in your mind that politician you hate. I'm going to get personal here. Do you hate Donald Trump? Do you wish bad for him? Do you hate Hillary Clinton? Do you hate this group or that group? When you read stories about their struggles or their failures, do you get a good feeling inside? Well, Jesus says that's not how this abiding love of God works. He says, here's what happens. The more they battle against you, the more different they are, the more an enemy they are toward you, the bigger your love for them increases. That's crazy, right? What God began with, you shall not murder in Exodus, Jesus completed on the cross. Hear that. So in Exodus, they go up on the mountain, God gives this command, you shall not kill. And then eons later, Jesus walks up on a hill and he says, murdering in your heart, hating people is like murder. And then he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then as the world gets more and more angry and as he loses his allies and his friends and everyone becomes at best an abandoned associate and at worst a sworn enemy as the hate toward him grows his love grows to the point that he who could call down God's wrath drags his method of torture and death up a hill and plants it and they're beating him and mocking him and spitting on him and what does he do? do you remember? He begs for their forgiveness. Oh God, forgive these people for they do not know what they do. He wants the two thieves hanging on either side of him to be with him in heaven. And he invites one of them. He's praying for his persecutors. That's the love that overcomes everything. And it never loses if it's applied the way Christ applied it. He overcame hate with love. And from that love, what did he restore? Life. That was his end game. Remember what I said? All the killing in the Bible? All the killing in the Bible perpetrated by God is for a purpose to restore that which existed from the beginning. Eternal life. And he knew that all the killing pointed toward one death. The death of his son. So I want to get practical for the rest of this passage. Martin Luther King, who understood this principle, said Jesus' command to love our enemies might make sense, uh, might make some people think that he wasn't practical. This is Martin Luther King. A lot of this stuff he wrote, he wrote from prison. 
Jesus' command to love our enemies made, might make some people think that he's not practical or that he'd lost touch with reality, but Jesus was dead serious. And he was not using hyperbole to make a point. Jesus knew that the only hope for civilization was to love even and perhaps especially your enemies. How do I love my enemies, he says. He says, first, 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 here it comes. I examine myself for those things that stir the seeds of hatred toward others, toward me, and others toward me. I examine myself first. I, I, I don't go hate somebody. I examine my own heart first before I confront my enemy. The second thing I do is I reflect on the other for the seeds of good, the image of God in him. When the opportunity, number three, when the opportunity presents itself to defeat my enemy, I forego the victory. When I've gained the upper hand, when I've gained the power, when I've gained the control, when I've gained the influence, I don't lord it over him. King reminds us of three kinds of love. There's eros love, which is an aesthetic love, an appreciation of beauty. There's philia love, a brotherly love, a kindred spirit, a love for someone who is lovely to you. But then there's this third kind, and this is the special sauce. This is the, this is the magic. Agape love. Here's how he describes it. A love that simply, that loves simply because God first loved. A transcendent love that rises above the need to fight for anything in return. This is the only kind of love that loves an enemy is the only love that held Christ on the cross. It is the only love that overcomes death. It is a transcendent love that rises above the need to fight for anything in return. So what's the practical reason that we must love our enemies? Here it is. Because hate just breeds more hate. Let me tell you what will never happen. And I want you to process this as I say these things in your own, I want you to process your own interactions and your websites and everything else. Here's what never happens. The time never comes when those you hate have been completely eliminated or converted. And there is no one left but those you love. That does not happen. You don't hate until everybody loves you. Hate has never satisfied its lust it only looks for more subjects to hate until the only subject left is you. And then you end up separated from God by hate. So, last thought for today. Probably the greatest challenge to this kind of love in our time is the practice of what's come to be known as othering. Anybody heard this term, othering? Othering? Well, maybe it's not coming to be known, but I'm going to call it that. Uh, no, you'll hear it. You'll hear it. Now you'll hear it a lot because I said it. Disassociating with people that you perceive as distant. Here's, here's how it starts. You disassociate with, with those who you perceive as dif different. You isolate yourself with only the like-minded. You feel superior to those. That's step number two. Then you feel superior to those that you disassociate with. And then you begin to classify groups of people with pejorative titles based on race or gender or attitudes or behaviors or politics or differing views. And then you find moral permission to treat them as subhuman. If you keep going with that, do you know what you get? You get the Nazis. You, you get the Holocaust. 
You get a bunch of people who feel fine and good and upstanding who have been in their minds given the divine right to slaughter. That's the road that that leads on. So remember this. Go home, make a list of the others in your life. Because for Jesus, there are no others. In Christ, there's neither slave nor free, social strata. There's neither male nor female. There's neither Jew nor Greek. That's race, that's politics. For all who are in Christ Jesus. So do this. Those people of other political persuasions, the other gender or race, the other social strata, remember this when you think of them. First of all, if you think of them in groups, you need to stop that. That's not how Jesus thinks of them. Here's what Jesus knows. Jesus knows the hairs on their heads. Jesus knit them together in their mother's womb. He knew their names from the foundation of the earth and he imprinted his spiritual DNA on their souls. So watch your hate and watch your mouth. Because Jesus is not just sweet and pie in the sky and neither is his agape love. His agape love is just. And he will defend the helpless. He will defend those you call other and you will become the other in the only way that matters. You'll become other toward God. So, Think about this. What would it look like for you to let this kind of agape love intervene in some things in your very practical everyday life? Your social media. Both what you post and the posts that you laugh at and the posts that you like and the posts that you tolerate. I'm not a hater of social media. I think it's an incredible tool. I really do. I think the internet is amazing the way it's, it's put information at, at everybody's fingertips. But you've got to curate it with the law of love and manage it and lead through it and be a, a, a model and an example to your friends and to your enemies about how you participate. Second thing, social issues. Try this one on. Befriend somebody you totally disagree with and don't try to convert them or say, well, I love the sinner, but I hate the sin. No, ask God how you can love that person as a person. Forget about their views. What do they need from God? What do they need from me? That's number two. Number three, the news. I was an advertising major. Here's what I know. News is a business. News is for profit. It's designed to compel you to suck you in. You are a product offered to advertisers. So there's a reason that when you watch the news, you feel like you shouldn't miss it. There's a reason when you watch it, it inflames you. It raises your blood pressure because it's designed to do that. So wherever you get your news... First of all, is it news or is it commentary on news? Second of all, does pride, anxiety, fear, anger, self-righteousness, indignation boil up in you when you're watching or listening? Turn it off. Turn it off. Find your news in a better place. Last thing, poverty. And I brought, I brought this one in because a form of hatred really is indifference. You know, uh, if you, I didn't bother to do this, but if you go throughout Scripture and look, everywhere it talks about murderers, it almost always talks about them killing the helpless, taking advantage of people, overwhelming the powerless, the orphan, the widow. 
So boy, that's where, that's where this hatred can be really insidious, indifference, you know, closing the window and looking down when the guy's coming up to knock on, you know. I understand that, and you certainly need to be safe and all that sort of thing, but, but that can create a habit of isolation for, for the poor. So this is something really cool, and I'm not showing you this as a political statement or anything else, but there's a guy named Ben Sorensen. He's a new commissioner, newly elected. Uh, there's been a problem, that's him. There, there have been a problem for years. He's also a pastor. Love that guy. Um, uh, for years, there's been an issue with homeless people uh, collecting at Stranahan Park over here by the library. And now there's literally a tent village. And a lot of us are trying to figure out how to justly and humanely help these people get to a much better situation than living at the library in Stranahan Park in tents. Imagine this weekend. Imagine living in those tents. Right? But for all kinds of reasons, which sometime I'll explain to you in a feature, um, we cannot take them somewhere. Um, and we're trying to sort out the right, loving, just, compassionate way to do that. Well, let me tell you what this guy did after he got elected. He's also the vice mayor. He set an office up down there. He set a tent. You can't, I haven't, there's another, you can look it up. But he set up a tent with a table. And I thought, oh, that's nice. It's just for show. He offices down there two days a week from 9.30 to 2.30. He leaves at 2.30 because that's when the city employees have to take his tent down. I have a, an appointment with him there next Thursday. That's agape love. Because all those people could be other, right? They could all be other. They could all be lazy, or they could all be working the system, or they could all be this, that, or the other thing. And you know, there may be truth in that in different levels. But he's trying to figure it out. Because to him, their people created the image of God. So that's Ben, but I want to leave you with one last one, um, and he doesn't know I'm going to do this, but David Mallory, here's another one where this love prevails. David Mallory uh, is the chairman of our diaconate. He's back there running the slides. And I was uh, reading my Facebook the other day, and I came across a post, and I wanted you to hear this. David volunteers, are you at Safe Place, David? Is that where you were? Were you at Safe Place? Is that where you were? So David volunteers at Safe Place, which is the place they go when a child is removed from the home that day. They, they're taken to Safe Place before they're placed in a foster home. I'll tell you what I would do if I had money. Sure, you would probably guess that I would buy a small airplane or boat and a piece of land somewhere, which if you know me would be about right. But all of those things dimmed in importance tonight as I played with several children at a foster care facility a little boy, maybe five, and a little girl, probably four, though she claims to be older, kept running and jumping into my arms, all of us laughing together. I rocked the girl's younger brother to sleep before he was taken to a home that night. When I checked on the girl for bed, she wanted me to hold her. She asked why her brother left and wanted him to come back. I stayed next to the bed until she finally drifted off to sleep. So what would I do with money? that had any lasting significance, I'd build a multiple-room home where children could go with, to be with loving foster parents. And since not enough people can afford to do that, I'd give them support to cover the children. And I'd have a larger house myself so that I could do the same. I can tell you how much I wanted to take care of that brother and sister tonight. If you're still reading, please consider volunteering. I only do two nights this month, but I wish I could do more. If you will, you just might change a little person's life. But I guarantee you that unless you have a heart of stone, your life will be forever changed.
That's the way you use Facebook, my friends. And that's the love of Christ that never loses. So leave here as people of restoration. Be honest with God. Ferret out the little bastions in you and replace them with that agape love of Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, there was only one who could live out this love perfectly and irresistibly for eternity, and that was Christ. And with my brothers and sisters, we thank you for your love, the love that pronounced that we must not kill, had in mind life eternal for those who would trust in you, knowing it would cost you the life of your Son. So we praise you for that, and may we go out after his model, his image, his likeness, and overcome hate in our own hearts and wherever we encounter it with the overwhelming love of Jesus. In his name, amen.